Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, We're going to be reading verse 13 to 27. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gates, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every health tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You guys may be seated. When we were in the uh, beginnings and and really the height of uh, quarantine, and I mean quarantine as in we were all kind of working at home and figuring out how to do church at home, uh, work, you know, on Zoom, um, relationship renewals on Zoom. The people in, in society who probably strug- who said they struggled the most with this uh, were stand-up comedians. And that's because their entire craft is built around interacting with an audience and, and, and getting a reaction out of you in the midst of their performance, so that when uh, they tell a joke and the entire audience laughs, you, you probably should know they knew you were going to laugh. And they wrote and crafted it that way. So, so when they were forced to try to do this over Zoom and tell these jokes, and it's just like black screens, silence, and nobody making any faces. They said it was just, it was devastating. Uh, One comedian, he said, I felt like an insane person at the bus stop who was just ranting to no one. It it, it just didn't work because everything is built upon your reaction. Like this sermon by Jesus, uh, that really kind of comes to a conclusion right here in this text, is not meant for you to hear it and to think that's cool, or how impressive, or how great. It's meant to draw you into a decision, to draw a reaction. In fact, everywhere in the Gospels, and even in Paul's early ministry, we see this, that Jesus will say something, say something intense and controversial, and nobody just nods their head. Either people want to follow him, or they want to kill him. 
And if you hear this right, and, and if you're hearing what Jesus has been teaching in this sermon, it must draw you to a decision. And that's what we want to do this morning. It's to draw you into a decision. And, and, and here's how Jesus is going to draw us into a decision. One, he's going to give us a splash of reality. Two, he's going to give us a paradoxical alternative. As in two things that seem different, but they're actually the opposite of what the other one is. And three, he'll give you a life-altering decision. That's what we get out of this text. One, a splash of reality. I mean, the first thing that Jesus is going to give us to draw us all into a decision is a splash of reality because what it does is it sort of assumes that when you begin to hear Jesus and you begin to come into contact with him and hear the teachings of the kingdom, there is a little bit of spiritual drunkenness that we all have. And so what he's got to do is, you know, you've seen it before in movies and TV and life, somebody who's drunk and out of their mind, you take their head and you just want to dunk them in that toilet or dunk them in that little uh, water tank and just sort of sober them up. And what Jesus is trying to do in these three metaphors is give us some sobriety, a splash of reality. And really the last two metaphors are the ones that really dunk us in that. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 15 to 20, Jesus gives this metaphor of two trees. He says this, Beware of you who are false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And to draw this out, he gives this illustration of a tree where he says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered in thorn, uh, from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Now, every time in the Bible that uh, it talks about trees um, and plants and fruit, it's always a metaphor for spiritual reality, for spiritual vividness, for spiritual deadness or on, on the opposite. And what he's doing here is he's drawing out the health of somebody's spirituality between an alive tree and a dead tree. And he just simply tells us the difference is one will have fruit. One will have uh, real living things coming out of it, probably talking specifically about all of the other things that he's mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, and the other will not. Then the other metaphor that he gives us is in verses 24 through 27, when he talks about the two houses. And the thing about the two houses, much like the trees, is that seemingly they're the same. In fact, in, the, in this text, this one's even more explicit. There is nothing different about these houses except the foundation that they're built upon. So what he does is he gives us this metaphor of trees and of houses. And he says, look, in, in some ways, these will look very much the same. And you will not be able to tell the difference between these, except when it comes blooming time, one will not be able to do it. The other one will. And the other one, when storms come, one will stand and one will not. And this contrast is what is in is the splash of reality. Now, what is it? Because many people on the initial reading of this think what Jesus is contrasting is uh, good people and bad people, or moral people and immoral people, or religious people and irreligious people, but that's not what Jesus is contrasting. 
And the clue to that is in verses 21 through 23 when he says this incredibly sobering text. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, these people are the ones who are the dead trees, are the ones who build their house on sand. Look at it. They say, we did this in your name, which means they're people who would profess Christ. And they say, Lord. Now, Lord is the Greek word for kurios. That was only said about Caesar until Christians came along and began to say, not, not kurios Caesaros, but kurios Christos, as in Christ is Lord. So they, they have good doctrine. But they don't just say Lord. They say Lord, Lord. There's a place in uh, David's life where uh, his son Absalom dies, and he says, Absalom, oh, my son Absalom. Every, every time the Bible repeats, it repeats for emphasis, to draw out passion. These people have emotional passion. They say, Lord, Lord. And then they say, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? They're, they're not just people who say they're Christians. They're not just people who uh, profess Christ and have good doctrine and a passion. They're doing ministry. And get this, successful ministry all around Jesus. And Jesus does not say to them, you fell away. He says, I never knew you. What a splash of reality. Now, what are these two people? They're not people who say right doctrine and don't say good doctrine. They're not people who do ministry, who do works for Jesus, and people who just, you know, are Christians, they don't do enough works. What it is, is people who think they can save themselves who do all sorts of things for God, who give God a good record in hopes that their record will be acceptable to him. In fact, the text, it, it says it in the Greek three times, did we not? In your English translation, it doesn't draw it out very well. It just infers it every single time they talk about ministry. But when in verse 23, it says it three times, did we not do this? Did we not do this? Did we not do this? And what they're saying is, all of these things, Lord, all of these things we did for you, how can you not accept us? And that is the narrative of the dead tree and the house that's built on sand. Jesus is contrasting it with, with authentic belief. One commentator, uh, Dale Bruner, professor, um, former professor at Fuller Seminary, he said it this way, how close to spirituality one may come without knowing its fundamental character. In John 17, when Jesus is praying, uh, his prayer, uh, it's called the high priestly prayer. One of the things he prays is that his believers would know him. 
He says, to know you is eternal life. And what Jesus is drawing out there is he says, it is possible to be around God, to do things for God, and to never, ever know him. And you've got to have that splash of reality. Now, here's what will um, make that abundantly clear for you more than anything else. What happens when the rains come in your life? Because these trees can look so similar, these houses can look like the same until, until the rains come. And it's nothing will draw this out more than suffering and setbacks. Because the person who does all sorts of things for God, who does ministry for God, it will all make sense until your life doesn't go the way that you want it. And you don't get the life that you want. And because when you don't get the life that you want, what will happen is all the things that you did for God, you'll just go, what was the point of this at all? There was a, um, there was a prominent minister um, in New York City who, uh, like two years ago, fell out of ministry hard. It was all over the newspapers and crashed. And what was tragic to read about his story is he said after he lost his job and lost his ministry, he didn't just say, you know, this is hard and tragic. He said, my life is over now. Now, one of the things that you always need to be aware of and help your pastor no matter what is to know that you are important. You are the call to serve and care for, but you are not the pastor's life. Jesus is. And there is way more to life than these jobs and calls. But why did he say that? He said that because he had built his entire identity, his whole life, around the significance of that job and the significance of how many people were coming and what was happening and what was looking. And here's what is so disturbing about it. Who in the world would look at that because of all these people coming and all these amazing things happening and thinking, maybe this is inauthentic. And this guy is talking about God but doesn't know God. Because what Jesus is showing here in this text is that the most successful, productive environments produce the greatest spiritual quakes. And they blind us to it. And you never want to get to the place that you never knew the reality of that. Everything that you were doing was false spirituality masked in cultural Christianity to the point where Jesus could ever say to you, I don't care all these things you did, I never knew you. And so he's telling you right now that that is possible. And you need that splash of reality. Secondly, though, if you want to have a decision and hear him the right way, Once you get that splash of reality, you need to see that there's a paradoxical paradoxical alternative. Now, what I mean by this is is there is an alternative here, but it's not so obvious and oblivious to our, our immediate eyes. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 13 and 14, the first metaphor, he says this, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And he says, enter through the narrow gate. Now, um, the old King James, I love this, it, it says, enter through the straight way. Now, you've heard this phrase before in life, um, <clears throat> stay on the straight and narrow. We, we've, we've sort of misunderstood that phrase because what we think we mean is uh, the straight as in the not crooked way in the narrow way. But actually what the old King James says is it's not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T as in not crooked, but S-T-R-A-I-T as in almost strangled. What Jesus is sort of saying is enter through my way is narrow and strangling-like. I grew up um, this little suburb of Chattanooga, Tennessee called Lookout Mountain, and up there is this little attractive um, local attraction called Rock City. It's a garden with many attractions in it, and, and one of the parts to Rock City is this place called Fat Man Squeeze. And if you go to it, it's two rocks that have been naturally grown together that's incredibly narrow. And it's so narrow that there's a warning over it saying, you know, that how dangerous this can be if you don't think you can fit. And so there's an alternative to go around another path another way if you don't want to try the fat man squeeze. Now, you know you're getting into Christianity and you're hearing Jesus when you begin to think that some of his ways and some of his teachings give you that alternative in life. That if I go through this way, it may squeeze me. But on the other side, there's a really wide open, easier path. And I hope it will lead me to the same place. But Jesus says, my way, it is hard and it is narrow. Now, why is it hard? It's hard because, A, it's not natural to us. I mean, in fact, this is really profound. Jesus says in the end of verse 14, he says, and those who find it are few. He says, my way, you have to find it. He says, the wide way, you just go. He never says you have to find that in the text, which sort of suggests that we're all blindly sort of naturally moving in one direction. In my way, you actually have to seek it out because my way is unbelievably um, contradictory to our natural impositions. I mean, think about everything that you've heard in the Sermon on the Mount contrasting these values. Standing on your own merits, taking up vengeance, being greedy. Those are not things that you have to work towards that you have to think out. They just naturally come to us. But things like loving your enemies, giving stuff away, admitting your weaknesses, those are things that you must seek and pursue in life. I said this in the beginning of this study, but contrast trout and salmon. You know, a trout just moves down the river with the stream down with the current. If you want to fish for it, you just follow the current. But a salmon, in order to find life, swims up against the stream. And the, the way of Jesus 
is hard because it is always upstream. It's hard also because you'll be lonely. I mean, the values of the world will find many companions. You will easily find people who are after the same things, who live life on the same propositions, who stand on the same kinds of merits and expect the same things. But the way of Jesus, you will, you will always be a cultural outsider. In fact, w- one of the things that Jesus gives you right now with this idea of the heart and the narrow is we have got to stop complaining about Christianity being on the outside of culture. It will always be. In fact, it's sort of designed to be. But it's also hard because it feels like death. At no point does Jesus ever say, follow me and you'll get the prosperous life. In fact, he says, if you follow me, Anybody who wants to be my disciple must take up his cross and deny himself. C.S. Lewis said, I didn't go to Christianity to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Jesus says my way is hard, but it's also narrow. It's narrow because it will strip all your worldly merit. Look, the narrow gate, the more you walk down it, the more you walk down that squeeze, it will squeeze out everything that you use to make people like you. It will strip it more and more and more away to give you actually more and more and more of Christ, which will make yourself a whole person. The Boston um, Alcoholics Anonymous creed is this. You give it up to get it back to give it away. You give it up to get it back to give it away. Do, Do you know where they got that teaching from? From this principle in Christianity. Jesus's way will always make you give it up so you can get it back and give it away. It is narrow, but it's also narrow because it will block all your worldly options. There's a place in John 10 where Jesus says, I am the gate. And anyone who enters through me will find life. And when he says, I am, that's a statement that's drawing out of Exodus 3 when God appears to Moses and Moses is going to Pharaoh and he says, who should I tell Pharaoh that that has sent me? And he says, I am sent you. And Jesus comes on the scene, and John records it, and he he says, I am. I am the gate. I am the way to God. I'm not a way around God. I'm not one of the ways. He's saying, I am the way to God, only me. And it's only through me and what I do for you. Now, a lot of people in our culture will find that narrow teaching of Jesus irrational and impossible like, how, how can you say that about my friend who's, who's just nicer than some of the Christians I know? If, if that's one of the things that bothers you about the narrow view of Jesus' kingdom, think of it this way. Imagine Becky and I raise our kids, our three boys, on these values. Love people, give money away, serve the poor. 
and we just teach them those things and ingrain those things on them, love people, give money away, serve the poor. And they grow up and they do that. But at about, about age 21, when they get their own jobs, they go away and they never, ever talk to us again. And they never want anything to do with us. They go live on the other side of the country. They have their own families. Every time we text them, they never answer it. They never want to come visit us on holidays. They want no relationship with us. But they love people. They give money away, and they're serving the poor. Do you think that they're good children? Because Jesus says, to know me is eternal life. It's a narrow way. Now, it's hard and it's narrow. Why would you take this? Why would you make the decision to go this way? And the answer is because on the other side of this narrowness is expansive life. He says, it's narrow, but it leads to life. And the way of the world is wide, but it leads to destruction. He says, my way, it looks so constrictive. It looks so narrow, but on the other side is everything that you want. Think of it this way. Like if you, if you go to New York City, the biggest Apple store that they have, it's like right across the street from the Plaza Hotel on the Upper East Side. And it's actually like this really cool little square glass that comes out of the ground that is uh, no bigger than uh, a third of this room. It's pretty small. And you walk in, and it's actually a spiral staircase that you walk down that's like three floors that's ten times the size of this room. And it's this like teeny little entrance that you go down and thousands upon thousands of people are in there. And Jesus says, that's what my way looks like. And here's the paradox of the alternative. He, like, it looks so narrow and it looks so hard, but actually Christianity is easier and wider than the way of the world. What do I mean? It's easier this way. Because the way of Jesus is built on grace. And the way of the world is built on you having to, at all times, be better than somebody else and keep up. I mean, the way of the world, it, it, it is just everything is works righteousness. You have to protect yourself. You have to be better. You have to outdo somebody. You can't ever let a weakness ever be shown through the door. Christianity is the exact opposite of that. In fact, the more weakness that you get in touch with, the better it gets. The more you give your life away and actually let people walk on you, the more of Jesus in heaven you will hope for. The more resources you give away and not soak up, the more of heaven you will have deeply planted in your soul. Everything in Christianity is built on one principle, grace and grace alone. And that means it is built for the weakest failures in this world. It is actually so easy, which is why Jesus can say, come to me, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. But the way of the world, the burden is so heavy and it is so exhausting. 
And you, and you know what, Christianity, it is actually way broader than the world. Because the way the world works is if you want to flourish in the world, you know what happens? You must adopt the values and culture of it. Every single time. But Christianity, this is so beautiful. There is not a culture that you have to adopt in order to be a Christian. Because what Christianity does is it actually comes into our cultures. Now, I don't want to get too segmented on view of culture and missions here. But Christianity is built on this, a transcendent God who is the definition of culture coming into our world. And you know what? When he came into an ancient Near Eastern Jewish culture, this is amazing. You don't have to become Jewish or ancient Near Eastern in order to follow him and be in communion with him. If you want to become Islam, you've got to become Arabic. If you want to become Buddhist, you must take on far eastern realities. Christianity comes into every culture. It says you don't have to be politically this way. You don't have to be economically this way. You don't have to adopt these kinds of cultures. It goes into all of these kinds of cultures and makes, you know what? The broadest, widest, most inviting worldview in the world that just has one idea. You, you must come with open hands to this king. It looks so narrow and it looks so hard, but it is actually so easy and so wide. And that's the paradox of the two alternatives. And Jesus says, choose my way. He gives you a splash of reality, a paradoxical alternative, but thirdly and lastly, a life-altering choice. Because in all that, he says now, decide. You must decide. Martin Luther used to say that we should learn to read the Bible backwards. And begin with the realities of the end and read it back through that way. And that's really profound, especially for this sermon. Because what Jesus says here at the end is actually instructive for how to read the entire Sermon on the Mount of this little illustration of the two houses, one that's built on the rock and one that's built on sand. Because what we'll see is that the life that is built on the sand, the house that's built on the sand, it can look so spiritual, it can do all sorts of spiritual things, but when the rains come, you know what will happen? It will always choose anger. It will always fall into lust. Your words will be fixed and maneuvered in order to make life for you, and you will never have a yes be yes and a no be no. When the rains come, you will choose retaliation and vengeance if you stand on sand in your own righteousness. You will not love your enemies. You will hate them and have to walk over them and protect yourself against them in order to keep standing on this quicksand. Spiritual realities like praying, giving, fasting, those will all have to be done so people can see it. Because the foundation of the house is all about the righteousness that everybody can approve of you. Treasures in heaven, anxiety, those things, 
they're all built on things that you feel are rusting and fading away. And at the bottom of all of these things, what Jesus is saying is, is you're just holding up your righteousness. Your own way of you being in control of your life, your own Lord and Savior, your own way of finding something in this world that you know will make you you and give you hope and foundation and security in this world. And this is the alarming thing, the last thing he says. If you do that, it will fall with a great crash. How devastating to think that the thing that can give you the most security, to know it will become a crumbling, storm-absolving house. So he says, choose me. And when he says, the, the one that builds it on the rock, it, he's not saying build it on these values. He's not saying build it on my teaching. He's saying build it on me. the security and foundation of your hope. See, here's the choice right now. For the rest of your life, your way of making life work in your righteousness or Him. Now, what will make you choose Him? Here's what will make you choose Him. This last word, the house on the sand fell with a great crash. In Matthew 26, verse 39, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to go to the cross. It says this, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but you will. It says he fell to the face with his face to the ground. It's the same Greek word that he says could happen of you if you build your house on the sand. And what we're being told here by Matthew is the judgment that Jesus says can come to you if you build your life on the quicksand came on him. That he faced himself. That Jesus looked at us and knew that we would always, always be tempted to build our house on quicksand. To find something in this world to know that people can't look at our weaknesses, they can't understand how hard life is and let them in. And we won't rely completely on grace and Jesus alone. And he walked in our house for us and let it crumble on him. And here's why you should build your house on him and look to the rock right now is because he was willing to go in your house and let the storm of all storms of God's judgment and wrath fall on him so that by grace and grace alone you can live in a house forever that will withstand all rains, all storms, and everything. Walt Disney was once asked when he knew that his park was a success and going to work, and he said, you know what? I knew the exact day and the exact moment that this was all going to work. He said every morning he would go out and take a stroll before they would open up the park. And he would kind of look around and see how things were going and see how the day was going to be. And he said one morning he was out taking a stroll and he saw Cinderella getting down on the ground and picking up trash. 
And he said, that's what I knew. He said, because if we could get Cinderella to lower herself and to pick up trash and to get herself dirty before she goes and be the princess and to become all in that way, that I knew everybody else would follow and be all in. Okay, Jesus wants you all in to decide right now, to build your house on the rock with him. Look, see him, your king up on a cross, hanging for you, undergoing the greatest of crashes so that the crashes will pass over you. Decide. That's his call from the Sermon on the Mount. Let me pray. Father, help us to see him. It seems so blind to our obvious eyes. Lord, when we look out, look out at the world, all the values that we're seeing people run to, it seems like there's many companions. It seems like it is the wide, obvious way of joy and thanksgiving. But Lord, it is a dark, empty path with a cliff on the end of it. Lord, you walked into that house Lord, anybody here whose house is built on the sand, would you help them to see how you walked into their house with them? Lord, and you give them the sturdy house built on the rock. Help them to see that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.